Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'm very excited to preach the sermon and very focused on the unity that we have in Christ. Even the beauty of coming out of the testimony of the unity of the body of Christ in, in communion, in the Lord's Supper, and what He's purchased for us to be His and to be His family forever. In the last three weeks, we've spent time in the first 19 verses of this most precious prayer of God the Son to God the Father. He's praying for His glory for his faithful disciples who have walked with him to this point in the ministry he's sending them out to do as he goes to be with God the Father. And where we pick up today in verse 20, as we'll finish the prayer today, we'll go all the way through verse 26. Jesus brings the third and final group into his prayer. And it's special to us because it is us. Look with me at John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. He just got done praying for his disciples, his faithful followers in that moment as he's praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's just finished a a lengthy part of this prayer and praying for his disciples and the believers that are with him at this point. And, and, And I just say, praise God for those who have come before us. I, I, I hope that you are regularly full of gratitude for those who have come before you. For God's work in the apostles who launched the church, the elders and missionaries who were committed to preaching God's word, making disciples, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to unreached people groups, which was the world as it grew from, from its roots, Jerusalem beyond This last week at our midweek gathering, we started a fall focus of looking at church membership, who we are as a church uniquely, and and what it means to be a committed part of the local church. And one of the things we focused on this last week was looking back at our 128-year history and our church's ministry, and God giving perseverance to continue us from generation to generation. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. A critical time in the life of the church to reform and to stand on biblical truth. Brothers and sisters who lost their lives to fight for the true gospel and biblical authority and sound doctrine. Church, we must always be grateful for those who have come before us. We stand on their backs and we take the baton now in this time being our time. And this is also why it's so critical that it's not just about us, but we are faithful in making disciples and training up the next generation so they too will carry on the Lord's work both here and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We are now included in those who will believe as a result of the testimony and the work of whom Jesus trained and sent out. He stood there that night and prayed to God the Father for all of his elect, including those who were yet to be born and saved and sent on mission. That includes us. 
Church, he is moments away from being arrested and hours away from the cross. And he's praying for us. He knows what is right around the corner and he's praying for us. He, he's thinking about us. He knows us and what he's planned for us. Our Lord loves us and he's faithful to pray for us. I, I pray that you are ongoingly thankful for his ongoing intercession for you before the Father. A marvelous and essential work of Christ in this very hour and day. Beloved, praise God that he knows all and is over all. I'm so thankful that we that God is not uncertain in what's to come. That he knows and he ordains. And he is worthy of our praise. Amen? Let me ask this. Are, are, are you faithful to pray for future believers? How often are you praying for those who are yet to be saved? Not just people you know, but all the people you don't know. People who will be part of your eternal family. Your future blood-bought family. The work God is doing in our church in this season, in this generation, it can't just be about us. I mean, imagine what, where we would be if those disciples just hunkered down and just enjoyed life with Christ and kind of kept it all to themselves. Had, a, had routines and rhythm in their weeks and their practices that just wasn't really ever about getting out, exposing themselves to people who would throw them in jail, who would hurt them if they shared this gospel. Praise God, they didn't let it just be about them, and neither can we. We must begin to truly and regularly pray for those whom God will bring, if not already. Those in this city that need to hear the gospel and be trained up in the biblical ways of disciple-making that are so passionate to us here at Disciples Church. That we are not building a $7 million new church campus for us. If we are, shame on us. But we believe that God will expand our borders, that he intends for more to come and be, be saved and be discipled and be sent out. In the coming weeks and months, your elders and staff will be calling you to the room to pray, to work, and to help get the word out. You cannot opt out of this and just make your church involvement for you and what you get and what, what feels good to you. Church, you must be praying and preparing for who God will bring in the ministry before us. So I'm telling you now, get ready. I'm asking you to pray, if you don't already, for those he intends to save, those he intends to bring to our church to be trained up, and sent out. The work that needs to be done won't just happen here at church. It's going to need to happen with you at home. It's going to need to fill your evenings and some of your weekends. I'm telling you, this next year is an important year for all hands to be on deck. That we would be good stewards of this campus launch 
and the ministry that we're in as we take this turn into 2018. So before we move on to verse 21, I ask you again, how are you praying for those who are yet to believe? And specifically, how are you praying for the non-believers in your life? A spouse, a, a children, siblings, parents, co-workers. Some of these people that we're closest to, we can get really frustrated with their life in sin or life in the world, their kind of rebellion from true surrender to becoming disciples of Christ, true true salva- salvation to trust their lives to Jesus and die to themselves. And, and we can get frustrated and, and, and in some ways we, we survive almost by pulling back from pleading with God and praying for them. But don't stop. Don't let your heart stop breaking for them because God's time is not your time. And so keep pleading for them. Keep praying. How about the people in this city? As you drive, are you praying for people? As you run to the grocery store, that your aim would not just be to get that loaf of bread, but Lord, may you give me an opportunity to shine the light of Christ, to be sacrificial, to have a testimony to others. Are you praying for our nation? And the gospel, the work on the people of this, of this land? Are you praying for the unreached people groups around the world that we still need to get gospel disciple makers to these tribes and tongues and, and lands? Are you praying for the baby in the womb? For salvation? Speaking the truths of the gospel even to the baby in the womb? When you go on a trip, is a big part of your prayers. Go, Lord, you're taking us, your people, on a journey. Let the destination or what we're aiming to do not just be the overall goal, but that we would be on mission and be praying for and interacting with in the gospel the people you put in our path. Let us be a people whose work is dedicated to discipling those God has put around us, but also people who are praying for those still desperate for the good news of Jesus Christ. Look with me now at verse 21 through 23. It's praying for us who will believe as a result of the disciples' testimony. And he says, he prays that, he says, that they may be all one. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This is the emphasis of Jesus' prayer for us. And so we must take it oh so seriously. I've often thought of of this plea with the weight, and the metaphor doesn't really do it justice, but if you had someone you were so close to, you got to sit by their deathbed as they were dying, and they got to grab your hand and look you in the eyes and have parting words for you to say, of all the life we've done together, hear this, or I long for this, you would 
really meditate on those words moving forward, would you not? I, I have always really seen what Jesus is praying for here to God the Father as that for us. And he wants a, a oneness. He, he's speaking of, to the Father about a oneness that he's had within the Godhead, the Trinity, in eternity past and forever to come. But he wants us, his bride, to have it with each other in God, in our restoration to God. And so it's important that we understand what that oneness is and what it isn't, because I think we can quickly kind of bring some some man-made views of what unity is or oneness is, and we can kind of cloud maybe what, what Jesus is really honing in on here. So that's one of my main goals today. I want to lift that out. The oneness and the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are unlike anything else in creation. It is out of the overflow of the love and the unity of God that man is made in the image of God, and true love and unity are ever experienced. It is important that we have a right view of what that oneness is and what it isn't. So let's look at what it's not first. It is not, this oneness he's praying for is not just union. Union, it means we are affiliated, but have no real common bond that makes us one in heart. A lot of people will lean on their union and call it unity. Just because you attend the same church, live in the same town, and have some kind of affiliation with each other doesn't mean you will experience true unity. Just because you are married, have the same bank account, live under the same roof, and even sleep in the same bed doesn't mean you are experiencing true unity. We can't lean on union as our best effort for unity. Affiliation or coalition can be helpful, but it is not unity in the deepest sense of what God wants for his blood-bought people. It's also not unanimity, which is a unanimous agreement across the board. Unity and oneness that Jesus is highlighting here is not just agreement. It's deeper than that. Now, what we can't do is throw away being of the same mind, especially when it comes to sound doctrine. The scriptures are clear that that is something he's also given us. This is unfortunately a popular scripture that some will use to try to say, hey, let's just set aside doctrine so that we can have unity and all sing kumbaya and, and all be happy together. Because doctrine's divisive. But that goes against the teachings of Scripture. Philippians 2.5, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, the unity we have in God, any affection and sympathy, complete my, my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There is, there is a, an agreement in mind that we have in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Unfortunately, man gets in the way of not trying to really work through our traditions and our personal longings to climb into the fullness of what the Scriptures teach and what God has for His people. So the point here is that unanimity or agreement alone is not enough 
For what I believe Jesus is highlighting of the oneness we are to have with each other. But it also doesn't mean we throw out that like-mindedness and agreement on, on core doctrine especially. Finally, it's not uniformity. Uniformity is man's effort to have unity and make us all look the same or act the same. Um, unanimity, uniformity are similar. One deals with the sameness of thought. One deals with the sameness of look or action. Uniformity is not the aim of Christ in his plea for our unity. Uniformity means we all must look and act the same. So it's, it's an effort to say, hey, you all have to wear purple pants and eat tofu and in your free time love watching reruns of MacGyver. And if you don't eat or dress or act or do like what we like to do, then you're not of us. And that's not the unity that he's fighting for here. That, that, that's a, a uniformity. Unity, oneness in God is not sameness. The oneness that God has within the Trinity, the, the oneness that Jesus is praying for us to have is a diverse unity. Many times we have fallen in the trap that says in order to, to really be united, you must be the same. And that's not true. I love the diversity of our family. I, I, I pray for it often that we would be more diverse than we are. Because it is a true picture to the world of how different we are in, in age or in look or in practice or in preference, but, but how united in Christ we are is that picture that ultimately Jesus will use to proclaim his message to the world. Romans 12, 4 and 5, for as in one body we have many members. One body with many members. The members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. United, although we're different. And we do different things and have different functions and roles. We need each other. So we, not, we don't discount another because they look different or or like different things. We embrace that. We see that trying to all be the same doesn't solve real issues anyway. It doesn't matter if we all wear the same colored purple pants. That doesn't help us work out our disagreement. What, what good is it for? So we learn to love our diversity and practices and, and, and all that He is within us. But if it's not those things that the world loves to kind of put their, hang their hat on and call it unity, if it's not that, then what is it? What is the oneness and the unity Jesus is so passionate about having in the church as we go through this next season? And he says it all over in these verses. Look at 21 through 23 again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Their oneness is just as you are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. That the world may know, may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one 
so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. There is something in this unity that the world sees and says that points to God in the gospel. We'll come back to that. This kind of unity or oneness that Jesus is praying for for us to have is the same kind of unity and oneness that has always been among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a trivial, hey, we need to be united and belong to each other and not let things divide us. It's not just that. That's part of what it means to be truly united in the body of Christ. The essence of what he's getting at, I think, is more specific. It's more unique. There are many religious organizations, even Christian affiliations, where people hang together really well. They support each other. They look out for each other. They walk together very well. But you can have all that and still not have the essence of what Jesus is praying that the church has in oneness that is like with what is among the Trinity. So there is a heart then, a bond that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had from eternity past and will forever have that is like unlike anything, any time. And so in their oneness is life. It is true selfless love. It is true holiness and right reverence for God. It doesn't serve a personal agenda or a man-made agenda or cause. It's not just a feeling without action and it's not just obedience without true love and devotion. There's a holistic purity to the oneness of God. It's unlike anything that the world knows. It's a unity in Him that we have in Christ that connects us in ways that nothing else can. And so when the world looks at it, it says, see the work of Jesus in those people and their lives. See his work to save them and change them. Because that doesn't look like the world. So in all of our efforts to casually read this and go, hey guys, we just need to be united. Let's just all get along and let's make the world think that we all... Those superficial efforts for unity that are still ridden by our flesh and all the different ways that it breaks down. What we are to have in God and to experience together that is part of our testimony is deeper and bigger than that. We cannot settle for fleshly unity or feelings alone or trying to just paint a picture for the world of a superficial unity and call it good. We must deeply abide in Christ and be so transformed and reborn in God that we are together a visual sign of something totally different. Life in God. 
And Jesus has been pointing this along the way. John 5, 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Church, this is, this is linked to that thing that we're constantly talking about, why we never do anything outside the gospel. And when we do, it becomes religion. And there's somewhat of a mystery in it and an understanding of it as we mature in the Word and in life and in discipleship that it, it becomes more and more central and clear and it really starts to change everything. This is that same kind of thing, but related to our unity. That we don't just hope that it all kind of works out and, and have really, at the end of the day, a bunch of man-made efforts to be united. No, there's something in God that's in us that we have that Jesus is longing for that is, that is God's work in us. So true unity and oneness refers to a oneness of heart and a unification in life, in the life of God. It means, it means, therefore, you cannot have this unity or true oneness outside of God. We must be abiding in the vine, in Christ. We cannot get a spiritual fill-up and then somehow go make this work on our own effort. We only truly walk together in Christ when we love each other with His love. When we obey with the Holy Spirit's power and conviction to obey. When we serve with the humility of Christ in and through us. You cannot have this kind of unity outside of Christ. You must believe. You must be reborn. It's not enough to just attend the church or do life with the church. You must become the church by being grafted in by Christ's blood, adopted with his costly purchase and his power. The unity we have in Christ is something we receive. Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We don't earn it. We don't acquire it. We, we are instructed to keep it, to practice it in Christ. We live out the love and the peace of God. We don't lean on our own stuff or our own efforts to do this. We are desperate for Christ. My own stuff and my own efforts will cause me to not practice this kind of unity. So this is why all the other teachings of Scripture are so critical because their application of why accountability is so critical, why obedience is so critical, humility and submission are so critical, because when we let our flesh lead, our pride lead, our laziness lead, we will not live out the unity of God that he's given us, that we have in Christ. We're living out of the flesh. May it be so in our lives as we abide in Christ. And the, and the diversity of our unity causes the world to go, whoa, hold on, time out, that doesn't add up. You, you people, in your differences, in all the ways you're different and, and, and weirdly together, doesn't add up in our matrix. So it's, it's surely something God has done in you.
Now, this unity is a key part of our, our testimony that they may be one just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Its aim is for those who are still to believe. The glory that you've given me and I've given them that they may be one even, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you've loved me. So the unity that we have, the world sees that it's not our ability to be closer or our efforts or it's not that one team, that one season that just was firing all cylinders and they just could do nothing wrong together. It was just that perfect season. It's not that. It's not, hey, this church has finally got it right. Let us not boast in anything we're doing when we're good at unity. Let us be hungry for and desperate for God and how He does this in and through us. And may we practice it as we cling to Him. That they may believe that you have sent me. Why would they believe that God sent Jesus to save and transform people? Because they see the change from the rule of sin. They see the family of God at work like nothing else in the world. God wants the world to see our lives together. Yes, they must hear the gospel. So we don't, we don't run to that thing that's become popular in a modern era where we, we preach the gospel with all of our lives and if necessary, use words is a, is a famous phrase that's out there. That's, that's a lacking, that's an unbiblical statement because Jesus has said clearly it is necessary that we use words, that we speak the gospel, we preach it, we say it. Faith comes by hearing, not by watching, by hearing. So we must speak the truth. You cannot just model this and say people are going to get saved. You must talk about dead in sin, alive in Christ, Christ alone. The gospel must be proclaimed. Setting that aside, with that, in the economy of God, he wants the, the visual of our unity, the witness of our unity of what he's doing in and through us to be a part of what they see as the difference and the beauty of the gospel. This is what makes your blood-bought family so much more central than any other group or family you're a part of. See, we are constantly fighting a man-made agenda in making an idol out of our blood family. We all have been sold this and have bought into it and in many ways are trying to shake an over-elevation of our blood family. You may deeply love your parents or your siblings, but at the end of the day, you will grow up and become an adult and move out and live your life and start your own family maybe and you'll take some of their strengths and try to leave behind some of their weaknesses. But your blood family is a means of God to raise and shape us and help us and to enjoy, but it is not the end game. God's, by God's grace, some of our blood family are saved and adopted into God's family. 
but consider what unity in God's family is to your life and how much bigger that is than coming from mama and papa or running for your childhood years with your brothers or sisters or the love you get to see in raising kids or grandkids. Why? Because your identity is shaped and reborn in Christ like nothing else. May we repent of our overclaim to, to trying to make happy mommy and daddy as if they were God. And the overclaim of our heart's expectation to say, I just want my kids to live out the things I taught them. May you parents and grandparents' greater prayer be for your kids that they not be in all the ways that you tried to shape them to be, but they would be in all the ways that Christ has given them new birth and wants them to be in Him. And that that would cause us to have a right grip of our blood family. It's our unity in God that's the very core of of what it means to be His forever. Now, do you always feel amazing at your saved brothers and sisters? No. Why? Because of sin. Because we're not in glory yet. We will have unhindered unity in every way and every moment once sin and death is no more. In glory, come Lord Jesus, come. But sin's still at work. Our flesh still wars. We let situations and feelings too often define or remove us or cause division. Let us repent of that. Let us fight that. Let us not be defined by our flesh or led by our flesh. We fight for each other. We confess our sin. We repent. We forgive each other. We endure because Christ is in us and he's working in and through us and the unity we have in God is like no other. I've seen this. I've seen it happen in our church. Stories I can't even repeat because the hurt or the betrayal is so deep. It, it is so hard. And I've seen the gospel wash over blood-bought family to bring forgiveness, to bring healing, to bring the renewal of trust and unity. You share that testimony with the world, they would laugh at you and go, how is that even possible? Why would you even pursue unity with that person after what had happened? This is why we mature in Christ and fight sin and look to abide in the Lord because there's so much on the line that it's just more than our church attendance or enjoyment. Our very lives are a window that God wants to give the world to see. So this is why we can't let the trivial stuff separate us and let petty differences cause real division and dissension. This is why we humble ourselves to submit ourselves to the word, to go to prayer, to lean on qualified leaders, to to, to serve each other sacrificially, to patiently walk with each other as we fight sin. Because it's not about feeling comfortable or playing nice. Superficial unity is not worth a thing in what God wants us to do for His namesake. It must be genuine. Paul says this so well in Romans 12, 9 and 10. He says, let love be genuine. That, that means without hypocrisy. And to abhor what is evil to hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, that deepest, 
good gut stuff that God gives us outdo one another in showing honor. That's what it's supposed to look like. And to see that it's not for us. We benefit by it. It's a blessing. But it's not for us. It's for them. It's for the watching world. We live out our oneness that God's given us in Christ for His glory and the testimony of His gospel. And so will you please fight the flesh that causes you to want to pull back, to not lean in, have hard discussions, work through tough issues, to not trust each other, to gossip about each other, to walk away and not lean in. Don't ever let it become about us. Let's always make it and keep it about Him. Finally, verse 24 through 26. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. He's looking forward to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these Know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says, Father, I desire, is revealing his longing, another beautiful and deep insight in the heart of Jesus, the things that are primary to him. And he's already revealed his greatest desire in the opening of the prayer that his glory would be seen and known. He would be brought into glory. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and the Son may glorify you. That the glory of God is his highest aim, his highest desire, as it should be. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world existed. Verse 5. So the primary task and goal, the deepest desire of Jesus' heart, is, is his glory to be known and praised. But there's a secondary high desire of God. He wants to enjoy eternal life with all whom he has been given, his, his bride. He wants to be with us. His greatest desires for glory, his glory. But he says, may they be with me where I am. He desires that his bride, his church, be with him where he is. Church, see the love of God for his people, for you. This is Jesus, God the Son, talking to God the Father in prayer. He's praying for us. He's sharing his longing for us to know and experience what he has known and experienced from eternity past. See the intimacy of this prayer and and the Lord's desire, how personal it is. See, its ultimate purpose never terminates on us, but on His glory. But see His love for us. So Lord, let us have a right view and, and not let us ever become the reason, but also not to shirk the reality that we are deeply loved by God. In the eternal love of God, the eternal and divine and holy relationship with the Godhead, we're invited into it because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's made himself known to his people that we would know him in a way that the lost in the condemned world does not know. Church, it's not a right to know God personally. To be in fellowship and right relationship with him, it is, a, it is the privilege of all privileges. To know the name, the glory of God. That he's not only made himself known to his disciples, but to each of us. And he will continue to make himself known in and through us. We are truly blessed. Christian, never say that you are not utterly and overwhelmingly blessed if not for any other fact than this amazing fact that the love with which God has eternally shown the Son, He has shown us in Christ. That we are forever His. And here Jesus stands in the flesh hours before the cross and he says it's time to complete what we sought out to do for the glory of God and the eternal good of these people. May we be just overwhelmed by that this morning. Caught up in the power of this moment and getting to witness this prayer. What we have in Christ and what that means for our witness in our days ahead that we would sing of his glory and his greatness, how great he is forever and ever. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together, this hour that you've given us to dig into your holy word and to, to commune together at the Lord's Supper, to, to fellowship and to pray. But Lord, we are guilty of fleshly thinking and habits of allowing these things to be a box checked and then we move on. Lord, I pray that we would in a growing way truly mature in our understanding of what we really have in you. The oneness you've purchased for us and is now ours in Christ that we would practice it, that we would worship you out of an overflow of it and that an authentic testimony of it would be a very bright part of our witness of the gospel to a watching world. I love how this chapter has given to me over a lifetime. that we would really have a right awe of getting to listen in to the Son's prayer to the Father. What you are doing and what you've done and what you intend for us and who we are. That we not trivialize it, that we not be flippant with it, but it would boggle us, it would cause us to meditate more on your word and spend more time with you in prayer you are great 
and you've made your greatness known all around us. And you've made your gospel known, not just in historical fact, but in the most intimate ways to the hearts of your people. That we would lean in and abide deeply in you. That all of your perfect purposes would be known in and through us. We pray for our brothers and sisters yet to be saved for our call to the Great Commission that we take it all so seriously. And so hear us now as we respond in song and prayer and prepare to walk out these doors into the, into the neighborhoods and restaurants and workplaces that you have ordained for us this week. You take our beautiful diversity and let the oneness of God be known in and through us. Be glorified in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.